Hello, and welcome to episode two of the LCLC podcast. The first season of this podcast is devoted to compiling an oral history of the Louisville Conference on Literature and Culture, or the LCLC, a conference that began back in 1972 here at the University of Louisville and continued without interruption for 48 years until the cancellation of the 2021 conference due to the COVID pandemic. In this episode, I will be talking to Jeff Stein and Sue Kirsch in order to reconstruct the 1976 LCLC keynote address given by Paolo Solari. One of the 20th century's towering presences in the field of architecture and urban planning. A longtime Solari collaborator, Jeff Stein is the former Dean of the Boston Architectural College and past president of Solari's Cosante Foundation. He is currently serving as the liaison between the Frank Lloyd Wright School of Architecture as it moves to its new home in Solari's Cosante Studios located in Phoenix, Arizona, and in Arcosante, the experimental vertically integrated model city begun by Solari in 1970. Both enterprises continue to be developed by Stein and other Solari associates, including Sue Kirsch, Arcosante's long-serving archivist. I know Jeff through a shared passion for motorcycling, a detail I mention now because it will thread its way through our conversation. One that I began by asking Jeff, what kind of man was Paulo Solari when he came to Louisville? He was uh, probably pretty humble and uh, quiet. He was kind of elfin-like in stature, not too tall, which meant that he fit perfectly in the Frank Lloyd Wright buildings uh, when he had been a student of Wright's in 1947-48 at Taliesin and Taliesin West. Wright, of course, you know, famously thought people over uh, five feet eight were weeds and uh, and. And Paolo was not one of those. I'm sure he was um, pleasant and uh, and curious about Louisville. And um, at that moment, he was at the very height of his career, I would say, just uh, coming off uh, a few years earlier. The famous uh, vision, architectural vision of Paolo Soleri exhibition at the Corcoran Museum which was attended by over 250,000 people. That's what I find amazing. That It would seem that the publications of Solare come, um, I guess, towards the late 60s and early 70s. I was reading an interview that you gave, Jeff, earlier about getting, uh, like, I believe it's called Archaeology, the MIT book with, with the... I would describe them as wild, perhaps slightly psychedelic drawings of these futuristic visions that he had of cities. And here we are a few years after that, and we, we don't have any internet, we don't have any of this sort of supercharging of dissemination, but Solari has tapped into the zeitgeist and has sort of... A, ascended into the stratosphere. He has. And, you know, cities are the biggest, most expensive cultural artifact that we make. And yet nobody talks about how to make them or what their form should be or what even happens within them. Soleri was among the first to bring 
the whole idea of having a conversation about cities to the culture at large, just because he was paying attention, really. I love this uh, quote from Leonard Bernstein, paying attention is a countercultural act of courage and resistance. And so Soleri was paying attention to issues of urban sprawl and carbon in the atmosphere and the reliance on cars to get to the grocery store or take a kid to soccer practice and all of that stuff and um, and trying to bring not only some opinion but some real science to urban design. And, um, and in 1975, he was recognized by the American Revolution Bicentennial Commission and given a big grant, which was matched by Xerox Corporation. And, um, and that allowed him to um, really embark on this uh, trip of understanding Two Sons Arcology, which is what he talked about in Louisville. One, the sun in the sky, which is really responsible for all life on Earth. And, um, and the other son, the evolving mind and spirit of humankind. Putting those two things together as the basis for the design of three-dimensional cities. And he got a little more detailed than that and uh, and showed some detail in the slides, but that was the beginning of something. These big grants, it allowed him to enlarge the staff at Cosanti. It's when I came on board in 1975 and um, to build a whole series of models and drawings and have uh, engineering consultants working on ways that solar cities could be designed in seven different climate zones around the world. So that was Tucson's Arcology. Mm -hmm. And looking at the, uh, the, the brochure that accompanied it that Sue provided to me, it says this exhibition presents a number of variations on the concept of small and large settlements showing an integration of five effects, the urban effect, horticulture effect, greenhouse effect, chimney effect, and apes effect. And of those, as a, a Gen X or somebody a little uh, younger, um, the one that I immediately focus on is the greenhouse effect. And, because that's the one that I've heard of, and Solari writes, the greenhouse effect enables the collection of warmth from the sun inside a defined space. When combined with the horticultural effect, this provides a natural agricultural base. And what is so fascinating to me having this conversation now in 2021 is this positive spin that Solari uses when he thinks of a greenhouse effect when, when I think of the greenhouse effect, I think of, you know, the, the term given to explain uh, how the Anthropocene, the, this, this, this phase of, of the Earth's existence where we are able to influence its climate uh, has, you know, what do we call how we are killing ourselves in the Earth? It is the greenhouse effect that is you know, run amok because we're unable to control our carbon emission. Right, it's Solari a different greenhouse event now. Yeah, yeah. What do you make of that? That 
What would Solari make of that now if he was in on the call? He'd say, well, sorry, the entire culture has uh, taken over his term and um, and used it to describe something negative, although it is essentially the same thing, which is if you have uh, a layer near the stratosphere of, uh, of carbon that uh, provides warming of um, what's below it. Mm -hmm. Sue, did you want to comment? It makes me think of the cities that, uh, the, the models of cities that were built for the Xerox exhibition. Um, Jeff showed the little catalog and you are reading from the catalog. And what those cities have are practical arrangements, absolutely practical arrangements where each model or each design is fit into a specific climate zone, but the designs also have an energy apron, a, uh, a greenhouse that is usually on a slope leading up to the city. So the horticulture effect of things being grown there for the city and the idea of the warmth of the greenhouse being collected and pumped into the city as a source of energy, it is all really a practical thing. And that this word uh, or combination of words has taken such a different spin um, is uh, curious, really curious, because, right. because uh, Soleri really was about how can we live on this planet and uh, to suggest practical solutions of the way that we're building right now, urban sprawl, where is that taking us 50 years from now, 100 years from now? Uh, what are we really seeing when we open our eyes in that direction? So his whole life, and especially in the 1970s, was des uh, dedicated to trying to come up with not only solutions, but with a challenge, especially for the young students that were uh, uh, part of the workshops, part of the lectures, he provided a challenge. Uh, here's a conversation. This is what we're doing. This is what we could be doing. What kind of ideas are you willing to bring to the table? I think that was his strength, that he never said, okay, that's the only solution. It was an ongoing a, a, a conversation with the people around him. This is what I'm thinking. And please take a look at it. What do you know? What are you bringing to the table? At least that's the way that I interpret it. It's yeah. true. And that's exactly how it was. And it, it led me in my teaching career in a series of architecture schools to apologize to incoming architecture students and point out that 
um, our generation, the baby boomers, thought that we could help to fix things. And uh, in fact, that's what um, led some 8,000 of us uh, over a period of 50 years to Arcosani and to help Soleri with his ideas. Uh, but the culture is slow to catch on. And so we didn't fix things. And, um, and now it's up to the next generation to stand on our shoulders as we were standing on the shoulders of some people like Soleri, who might have been short in stature, but was really a giant in architecture, and um, and try to come up with some solutions. You know, urban design architecture really isn't so fact-based. It's more an opinion-based practice. And, uh, and Soleri was uh, attempting to bring some science into the picture with the physical effects, the apse effect, chimney effect, greenhouse effect, horticulture effect. Those are real things that um, you can see and experience. And if you put them together in the design of a city, you get something that may be unexpected for most people, but um, could really be a solution to problems that Soleri saw forthcoming and um, problems that we're in the middle of right now. Right. So as somebody who's younger, I'm going to be 50, slightly younger, going to be 55. And I think about my own development and when uh, issues of the survival of the earth and perpetuation of uh, the life on it, including humans. I can remember my dad and I used to like to go for motorcycle rides and on Sundays and a ride and a film and a ride and then pizza. <laughs> that Ooh. was, that was a good Sunday for us. And one Sunday he took me to go see a film called silent running. And it, so it was, it was out in the theaters, and it's like a 1973 sort of science fiction film. I know, with Bruce Dern. It's one of right. my favorites. <laughs> I can remember seeing that film, and I was maybe seven or eight, and walking out, you know, I I, uh, I think my dad was, I think we were on the Ducati, so uh, appropriate for the Italian motorcycle for a conversation about the Italian architect, and thinking we are this is it. I mean, we are, we are in trouble because I am young and I will probably see some version of what this movie is about, which is that the earth has been totally uh, paved over essentially that sort of Joni Mitchell um, paved paradise kind of thing. And the only remnants of the, of the natural environment are floating up in terrariums. Uh, and of course, the the movie proceeds with the decision to destroy them and return to Earth. And Bruce Dern intervenes and kills everybody and dies. And you're left with these precursors to R2D2 uh, running, walking around in in their sort of clunky, cute little robot selves with watering cans, while Joan Baez sings a song specially made for the movie. But my point is that. When Solari got off the plane in Louisville, we may not have had the terms for the greenhouse effect. We may not have understood 
exactly how this was going to play out, but we already had a pretty good sense that we were in a crisis situation. And I find it fascinating the degree to which, as a culture, we play this game with ourselves that somehow we didn't really know until much later. <laughs> you know, it's like we were all there. We 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 have a much clearer sense of uh, the looming catastrophe now than we did back in the early 70s, but we had a pretty good sense of what was going, that things were going wildly off the, the rails back then, or am I mistaken, you know, because I was only seven when I'm talking about this. What was your, what was your sense of it back then? Because Solare, the other thing that fascinates me about Solare is that he has this sense of you know, it's going to take a long, long time for people to understand how right I am. <laughs> but we don't have that kind of time, perhaps. We've got to sort of understand how right Solari was in in the overall impulse that he had, even if his methods turn out not to be the right ones. We've we've got to we've got to catch, play catch up here very fast. Is is that? Was that a sense that you had back then or or not? Yes, it was a sense that I had back then and a, a number of people around me as well, not only at Arcosanti, but elsewhere. It's um, an interesting condition that we're in. The, the problem is, of course, that um, lots of people in control of the culture have continued to make lots of money doing the wrong thing and um and we haven't been able to uh, sort of get ahead of that curve quite yet mm -hmm. sue did you want to comment ditto ditto uh i think there is a um i don't know i don't know if it's a willing blindness or uh you know if it's not if it's not right in front of my door, why should I deal with it? And I think what has been uh, the overarching thing about Arcosanti is people coming together because they are willing to acknowledge and trying to put something together that is at least a, uh, uh, I'm not sure what, we never got as far as we hoped we would, but at least Arcosanti is here. So it's a bit of a reminder of a, just the conversation, just the conversation. We need to think, we need to think. And we cannot just merely go onwards buying the next uh, uh, model of car, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, right. There is sort of like um, the me, me, me factor and not the us. What is happening to us? So. Right. 
It's uh, Greta Thunberg had a uh, really interesting comment lately, which was she was critical of people who say we're not doing enough about global warming and um, a few other issues, because to say we're not doing enough would imply that we're doing anything at all, but we're not. We're not doing anything at all about it, and um, the time is uh, running short, and her generation is going to face it in a much more dramatic way than our generations. Right, right. But even, you know, when we are sold an idea like, oh, electric cars, those will help, of course, that an electric car doesn't really change anything. It moves the amount of pollution from in the city to a coal-fired power plant or oil-fired outside of the city. But that's about it. Plus, the batteries of of uh, electric cars are uh, really toxic waste after their useful life is over. And it turns out Chevrolet has just recalled every single one of the electric car Chevy Bolts that they have manufactured, 140,000 of them, because the batteries are all defective. They can explode and catch fire and all of that stuff. So it's going to cost GM $1.8 billion to replace those batteries with something, nobody knows what quite yet. And, um, and we continue on this sort of circular path of continuing to repeat our mistakes so that um, those in charge can continue to be in charge. Whereas out on the periphery and Arizona, a mesa in central Arizona really is the periphery, there's Arcosanti, which is uh, trying to show an entirely new vision about what the city could be and, and how much fun we could have in it and, um, and how supportive it could be to humankind. You know, we talk... Well, people talk about sustainability, but it's unclear what we're sustaining and um, and how we would. In order for cities to sustain us, they clearly have to change. And um, and Soleri and a lot of people around him imagined that he had come upon one way that they could change in a really positive way. And uh, in terms of literature and culture, he wrote a few books about it. Right. Well, and, and got the attention of, of individuals such as myself, that is professors of literature and culture. And I studied under uh, Fred Jameson. In an interview, Jameson said, realistic novels are still written, but I'm not sure that even literature itself is the main vehicle for culture today. I would say architecture has become a more influential expression of post-modernity. I think this is a period of a spatial aesthetic. And that's Jameson, you know, I used to talk about realistic novels, but now I'm going to focus on architecture because I find that architecture is the driver through which humanity is best expressing itself in our current moment. And as a student of his, I thought a lot about what he had to say and I, I agree with them. And it seems to me, so on one hand, when Solari got that invitation because 
Jameson is reflective really of the zeitgeist among uh, professors in America at that time. And so the people at Louisville uh, reached out and said, wow, we really need to talk to Solari. Will Solari come? And Solari came. And my question uh, to both of you, and we're, 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 we're touching on it, is although Solari had this moment of, of strong interest, and I think Jameson is still right that architecture is the key to understanding our cultural moment, we're having the conversation that we're having, which is that we're going down the wrong path. What what can we do to go down the right path? It's a really uh, poignant uh, question, the right one to ask, and you'll have to continue asking it <laughs> once the Literature and Culture Conference uh, comes together, because I'm not entirely sure how to do this. And, and neither was uh, Soleri. He wanted to build a model, some of which is built on a mesa in central Arizona, some 80 people and, um, and tourists and um, uh, a school of architecture is ensconced there right now. There are two things about postmodern culture and architecture. One is that architecture in the postmodern is so much more accessible to a larger public than most literature. It's, it's probably the case that um, much of America is actually illiterate entirely, and even the literate folks aren't going to read Jacques Derrida um, too closely. But if you walk past a, um, a building that is quoting from the past and uh, yet its spatial um, layout is clearly of the future, you can sort of get that. Architecture is a storytelling art. It just doesn't tell too specific a story so that as people go past it or experience it or inside it, they can um, tell their own stories or see how it influences them. The problem with architecture and, and cities and, um, and arcology too, is that it's really expensive. Architecture is, it's so much more expensive than a book. A, a building, one's home, a, a university campus, a corporate headquarters, they're the most expensive things outside of maybe an aircraft carrier that um, people um, purchase in their lifetimes. And, um, and so to change course with architecture and city building from essentially building the cheapest stuff that you can and, um, and flipping it and um, letting it um, exist on the planet for 20 years or so before it's torn down and, um, and some other cheap thing put up, to change from that mode of uh, thinking and uh, and acting on the earth to uh, a different mode that is a group of people coming together and collaborating and um, and building something truly expensive but which is going to last for generations 
is um, a big step to take culturally. So I think that's, I agree with you, Jeff, and I think that's profoundly put. At the same time, Solari, his methods to go back to casting in the ground and um, to produce these things that are functionally doing what we want them to do, but uh, in terms of contemporary aesthetics, people I think tended to call this sort of stuff brutalism, that the culture doesn't seem to to want to embrace that the 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 need to take actions that are close to hand and um, efficient and uh, readily available. Um, why why do we con continue? It's hard for me to look at Arcosante and say, "Wow, that's really beautiful." How do we change that attitude? Well, that's the continuation of the same question we asked about 10 minutes ago. Um, there is a myopic, uh, 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 how would you say, underlying, underlying um, a way of people, of the way people deal with the world. I think Soleri uh, went as far as to say that the architecture that we live in really shapes what kind of society we are. And if we are just continuing the drift, then what will come out of that? As a species, we have intelligence and if we were to really look at the reality of our existence then shall we not participate in our own evolution and one of the things that would be most important is to look at what kind of architecture we are building for ourselves and for future generations and so it all ties together. He had a very simple and practical approach and tried to build a model, basically. If we can't just talk about it, the best way to show what we're doing is to build an example. But as to society and large, uh, even wanting to understand that that's, that's a question that will continue to puzzle, I think, all of us. Why? You know, the 1960s were a really seminal time. A lot of things were going on the late 60s, the great student revolts and um, the end of the Vietnam War for the United States and some other countries. And uh, we put um, the Apollo program, um, um, a man on the moon. The first Earth Day was uh, 1970. But what was really going on then was the self-help movement, psychiatry, 
um, people going for therapy. This really took off among the general public for the first time in the 1960s. The notion was that we could be better people than we were. We could be a, a, a better, more inclusive, more interesting culture than we were. And Soleri's idea, since he was uh, trained as an architect, doctor of architecture from Torino Polytechnico, and then a year and a half with Frank Lloyd Wright, his idea was, well, if we want to be better people, we're going to need better architecture to support us to be that. We can't continue to just live as hermits in our little suburban enclaves, but we're going to have to come together in, um, in cities in a way that maybe we did in um, earlier times, but we haven't since the Industrial Revolution, and, um, and make some beauty out of that. And, uh, and so for his aesthetic and a few of the rest of us too, Arcasani, those buildings really are pretty beautiful. There are some ways that if you really thought about it and, uh, and took a step back, most of what we build in Western civilization, especially in the 20th century, is horrifying, actually. Oh. And, and, uh, and, and so to have an alternative to that was Soleri's idea. He had his own aesthetic, but there are, um, what, about 110,000 uh, registered architects in America and um, more than that worldwide and other people um, like professors of literature who understand architecture and what it can do, um, those people can come together and devise their own ways of dealing with this thing, but they can stand on Soleri's shoulders and use some of the things that he discovered and put into practice at Arcosanti and, uh, and create something that looks a bit different, but would function in the same way. Mm -hmm. Soleri's idea was that cities might be the newest organism on the planet. And if they were to be sustained and to sustain us, they need to be designed the way all the other organisms are designed. That is, like us, three-dimensional, compact, complex, these bodies. If, if our bodies are either too small or too big, um, people are interested in that stuff. But when they're just right, um, then we're able to uh, go about lives on Earth and, um, and really do some interesting things. Because of the way we're designed, for better or worse, we're the most powerful species on the planet. And I talk about that in a couple of minutes too. Um, but because of how we're designed, we can be Come William Shakespeare or um, or Bach or Matthew Bieberman. It's uh, fantastic the possibilities for us in this design. And so Soleri imagined that there would be just as many fantastic possibilities in the design of cities that weren't just spread out for miles along the ground, but could be built up and um, 
and focused inward and instead of outward. And so his notion of arcology, architecture and ecology as two parts of the same thing um, really hit a chord among quite a few people who were searching in the 1960s for a way that um, we could move ahead, that the culture could evolve and that humans could uh, socially evolve as well. Turns out that didn't really happen, but um, we have that model that we can still cite and, um, and see what we can do with it. Right. Well, another keynote, uh, and I'd, I'd like to explore this, this one much, much later, the French philosopher Alain Badu gave a, a, an address around 2006, and I invited him. And the thing about Badu is he's, he's got a book called The Century, and he would come into this conversation and say that in his sense of time, and uh, his big book is called Being an Event, and of human development, that we've essentially frozen at that moment that 1968 is the is the way that he would style it and that everything has been a um a reaction to try to arrest moving through the revolution that we're pointing to as what needs to happen if we're going to survive that we we can see what it is we need to do but forces of uh, of counter-revolutionary forces, Badu would say, have have prevented us from stepping forward so that in a certain sense, we haven't advanced at all from the precipice of where we were uh, at, at that moment where, where we had, if anything, more hope to actually cross the precipice and move on. And I guess that's, that's, what terrifies me is that obviously we're sitting here and wondering if we're going to be able to make that jump and see uh, the earth and the and the human animal uh, continue on into the future or not. Wow, Elaine Badu, that must yeah. have been really something because I can only agree with him 100%. Yes, that's where we are. And there are forces that are trying desperately to stop us from taking the next step. Wow. Right. You know, the other thing that I would mention too, is that, and I, I guess as we're kind of coming around and wrapping up our time together, and Jeff and I, I was saying, have this shared has come up a couple of times, uh, affection for motorcycles. And I was talking about casting in the ground and uh, we were talking about BMW motorcycles, my, myself and my dad and my family's associated with the English made Vincent motorcycles. And uh, I had the opportunity to have uh, Phil Irving, who was the chief engineer of uh, the Vincent motorcycle. And before that, Velocet stay, he's Australian and stay uh, at the family house in Norfolk, Virginia on one of his visits to, America. And he's of that same generation, that the Solari generation, sort of the great modernist generation where you can talk to somebody about what it was like to realize that you're riding a motorcycle uh, 
So you could use your feet to do the controls too. It didn't have to all just be through your hands. And what was it like to design a foot shifter? I mean, what was it like to design the first foot shifter, one of his jobs at Velocet before he moved on up? And the Vincent team fell into casting in the in the ground when they realized that their motorcycles were so fast that the brakes weren't sufficient. And it, they hit upon the idea of putting another brake drum on the other side of the wheel. Nobody had thought to use the other side of the wheel. So they cast more brake drums at the Isle of Man in the ground and they were sufficient to go out there and perform. Um, another old uh, friend of mine and my father's um, talked about, uh, God, the guy's the name, Burt Monroe, well known for the world's fastest Indian. And sure. my friend told me that when Burt hold pistons out at Bonneville, he would, he would fix his pistons and cast new pistons right out of the ground in the salt. So necessity is the mother of invention, you know, and we, we just seem to have gone away from the, uh, the intuitive, um, the intuitive ability to, to utilize things that are right at hand. I don't know when we're going to get the impulse to go back and do that sort of thing. Yeah, you bring up a really interesting issue, which for Soleri was his part of his genius was he could make something out of nothing, which was casting wind bells at first and then um, parts of concrete buildings in the ground using the dirt piled up as a, a mold for these things and um, and could turn out beautiful objects as a result of it, as well as Phil Irving did and um, and others of that generation. Now, <laughs> we talk about that stuff as maker culture, as if it's something really extraordinary. What, people can actually make things? It's not just typing in front of a screen that you can do with your life all day, but you could actually make something? Wow. And um, in fact, um, our parents and grandparents' generations actually did that stuff. Right. Sue, did you have any any last thoughts on on this topic or, or something that you all would like us to circle back to? All sorts of thoughts. Uh, part of it is the education, the level of everyday education that the kids in the last two or three generations uh, um, have gotten the fact that kids are sitting in front of the television instead of playing outside in the mud. So I think the maker uh, uh, generations before simply grew up with a different, uh, in a different set of circumstances and it would be really good if the kids uh, of this generation went back outside to play and uh, got away from the uh, um, fear mongering on television 
and from the fear mongering of their parents of, oh my God, you can't play outside alone. Uh, I mean, what kind of a society are we really uh, grooming right now? away from the fact of the pandemic in general. So I think Soleri had, uh, had some really good things to suggest to us. And um, I think we're very lucky that somebody like that came. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, one last question as we wrap up. Um, and I thought about, I struggled with the phrasing of this question, but then I realized that there was the, the way I wanted to ask the question was, I am now the director of this conference that's had a 50 year history. And certainly in the 50 years of this conference, there have been a lot of things that have gone right for this conference. And certainly there've been a lot of things that have gone wrong. And in this kind of conference, no doubt there have been opportunities for abuse. And no doubt, as the director, I have to uh, accept that this organization has overseen some good things and overseen some bad things. And I know that uh, Arcosante and the Cosante Foundations have had to deal with the revelations that have come out uh, with Solari and his daughter what advice do you have for me? I see how Arcosante has handled it. What advice do you have for me so that I can handle those kinds of issues? Because it's inevitable as people in organizations that this is an issue we have to handle. I guess you can um, just be as transparent as possible mm -hmm. and understand that people who do great works sometimes um, have some flaws just like the rest of us who don't do great works but but really how selfish do you have to be to make a great work of art really selfish in terms of your time, in terms of what your focus is, in terms of all sorts of things that um, may be outside the bounds of polite society. And um, and there's a, uh, there's a difference between someone's personal life or dysfunctional family and the work that has happened, I think. Every human has um, has flaws. All of us do, and um, and while we can't excuse them, uh, at least perhaps we can forgive them and um, and see what good they produced and build on that. Mm -hmm. I can so only, any any thoughts, uh, Sue? I can only second that. Thank you, Jeff. That was a very good way of. Mm -hmm. That question. <clears throat> Thanks, Jeff. That's certainly something that I will keep uh, with me um, when I have to cross that bridge, which no doubt we all we all do in our own ways. Well, I'd like to thank both of you for taking time out of your day to help us 
talk about the 1976 keynote that Paulo Solare gave to the Louisville conference. And I hope perhaps one one day again, we'll, we'll talk um, another time about some other aspect of literature, culture, and architecture. Oh, I do too, Matthew. Thank you. It's been a pleasure to talk to you and, and to talk to my old neighbor in the East Crescent at Arcosanti, Sue Kirsch. This is great. Thank you. Thank you very much for asking me to be part of this. So best wishes. Best wishes to you, Jeff. <laughs> oh, yes. And best wishes to you, Matthew, as you continue to direct this conference, which is really the only one of its kind. And uh, there you are. My thanks again to Jeff Stein and Sue Kirsch. I thank you for listening and hope you will continue to do so. More importantly, I hope you consider joining us for an upcoming LCLC conference. Consult the louisvilleconference.com for details.